0: Everyone, and welcome to episode two of Directorial Debuts and Affiliation with Plot Devices, the sort of hell spawn of Plot Devices, which is a whole other thing, which you could go listen to if you're listening on this channel on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can check out any of our episodes listed in the channel in association with it. My name is Brandon King. I am one of your hosts for today. This is Directorial Debuts, a segment that you've probably heard on several episodes of Plot Devices. If you are a loyal listener, and I hope that you are, in our first episode, we were talking about Matt Reeves' as The Pallbearer. Uh, we are going to switch gears entirely to D. reeses debut feature, uh, Pariah. I have my co-host, Noah Guzman here. Noah, qu- very quickly, how are you doing? Uh,
1: still wiping the tears off my face, Brandon. Uh, how are you?
0: As am I. Uh, we're gonna toss it over back to you for Pariah. Again, this is D. reeses feature debut. Tell us about what it is.
1: So Pariah, yes, directed by D. reese explores the life of Aleka, played by Adapero Oduye, who has a different form of expression um, when it comes to identity. And she is in her junior year of high school. And it's one that is really her own when she's out at school with her friends. Her best friend's name is Laura, who we have. Um, we get to explore their relationship throughout the film. She's played by Pernell Walker, uh, but she has an entire entirely different form of expression and might even be a <laughs> no, it is a form of suppression um, when she's in front of her very conservative parents who see Alika as just one way and that is their way. And so this movie, um, you know, this movie, the bulk of it covers topics of identity and how that looks in front of different, um, you know, outlets and relationships of your life. And one of the scariest ones is, yeah, growing up and facing sometimes that barrier between yourself, who you are and who your parents see you as. Uh, Brandon, this was my very first time exploring a D. Reese project. And I'm so happy you introduced the project of, or the movie of Pariah to me, the masterpiece actually. Um, but I'd like to hear from you when Pariah made it to your vision, because this is a 2011 release and kind of what's your familiarity around D. Reese as a creator, as a director, as a writer um, has been in the past up until now.
0: At the time, I was, you know, this was like t- late 2014, early 2015, I was really starting to get into cinema, into, you know, movie reviewing as a whole, and I was, you know, I was in love with Ava DuVernay's Selma, and someone was telling me, oh, if you like Ava DuVernay's work, you'll love Dee Reese's work, but needless to say, like, I became affiliated more so with her with Mudbound, um, that was her 2017 project with Mary J. Blige and Rob Morgan and uh, Carrie Mulgan, all-star cast in that, uh, she at big, really important film, actually, Mudbound, because and resulted in her becoming the first Black woman to be nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, a lot of D. Reese's work ever since then, minus a notable project, has been about Black womanhood and Black femininity. Uh, and with Haraya, this was based on a short, which I admit I still haven't seen. And I don't think you have as well. Um, the very first episode of Director of Abuse we actually did was on Spike Lee. And it's become kind of this weird roundabout way of going into other films because he produced uh, Fruitvale Station. He produced I Will Follow with Ava DuVernay. And then now he does this. So, like, it's kind of been this weird thing of, like, every other time we come back to a black filmmaker in the 2010s, Spike Lee has something to do with it. Uh, I don't believe he's worked with uh, D. Reese since, but it's been this weird kind of roundabout way. Needless to say, I love this movie. Uh, I think it is better than Mudbound. I think it's more concrete than that. And I'm dying to get into that with you. Um, What were your initial thoughts about Pariah? Because this is a very, it's a very subtle movie. It's a very, it's a movie that explores subject matter that we don't often see before. Did you find it at all difficult to engage with? Or was it as universal as a lot of people have said it is?
1: Yeah, listening to you describe it, it's just, it's easy to take those words and run with it. Because when you say universal... I mean, I'm immediately on board with that term because looking at this movie, um, I was expecting kind of like an individual's journey where we didn't really get to explore any of the relationships that heavily, but was more so just a struggle of the self and like understanding yourself and just... Um, accepting that learning it and move and growing up um, overall but no this is actually a movie that's rarely really easy to pick up because of the relationships that exist Um, the relationships between the mother and daughter um, the eldest daughter and her younger sibling uh, having a best friend that your parents see as like just unfit for you Um, your crushes like it's It's those late teenage years where they're all too familiar to me because that was only like, that was only like six or seven years ago. Um, But for, I think everyone picking up this movie, there's just familiar relationships to feel like the, feel the moments off of. And that's one thing that I think we were struggling to find in our first D.D. episode with Matt Reeves, the pallbearer here in Pariah. It doesn't feel like a scene for my experience, it didn't feel like a scene was unfocused. I felt like I was here with Alika on the journey of understanding what it means to present yourself one way and have others look at you because they're, they're uncomfortable. Like they have misplaced comfort around how you are just presenting yourself to the world. It is so real. um, And like coming from the queer community, it just, Like it's an emotional watch. And I'm looking at this movie when I said early on that I was still wiping my tears. That's, that's genuine because um, you really feel for a character who just wants to be. And yet there's just constant barrier after barrier So many things broke my heart, but I did feel mended because of the the writing behind D. Reese's script and uh, the poetry that she works in. Who knows if, uh, I don't know where the poetry comes from, but if D. Reese wrote all that poetry, like it's beautiful. Um, Alika, the character, is a poet. And while that's not a, like the the heavy focus in this movie, um, her work does come up at different parts of it. And uh, it it remains impactful, you know, even though it's not the the focus of the story. If you wanted to uh, kind of dive into this one topic of conversation is immediately the outlook of her parents on her and how those conflict with each other, because I don't feel like her mother and father look at her in the same way. Of course, they both have their their mutual feelings of, you know, misunderstanding when it comes to like sexual identity, but they have different ways of expressing it. Alika's father is... He's partially present, but there is a mention of him cheating and him spending nights out outside of the house, away from the mother. And the mother's kind of like the main discipliner when it comes to the two daughters. And um, that makes it hard, I think, for the mother and daughter to really establish like a arms down kind of relationship. Um, You know, it's not one that um, I've experienced, but watching it, it's like, it's just, it's all too real. So uh, what did you think about, you know, first relationship, let's talk about the parents and how they reacted
0: there's this idea of distance between both of them, whether it's the mom with her religion or, you know, with her social spaces or the dad with his work. And there's this idea that, yes, they both have a form of unconditional love for both Alika and her sister, whose name is loading me right now. I will get back to you in a moment. Um, but like with both of them, there's this idea that they deeply care for her, but are deeply misunderstanding on different levels. Obviously, the dad is framed as a bit more caring, a bit more present, so to speak, but even he's not there. Like he's not in the house when Alika is suffering what she views as abuse from her mother, who in her mother's point of view really doesn't see it like that at all. She is in her form protecting Alike, And it's this motion of constant misunderstandings that will eventually reach a boiling point. It's really hard to watch, but at the same time, it's this really, I think, beautiful, subtle exploration of how parents can find themselves in the right about their kid, when in the reality, they don't want to listen to who their kid is. And there's. That beautiful scene when they're like eating burgers at like midnight in the kitchen or something like that. And th- you mentioned the cheating aspect to it. I never found it concrete one way or the other, but I think there's that idea of would her dad have told her anyways? Because there's a the idea of like, yes, her dad trusts Alike, but like would his secret come out as opposed to hers? And like I found that really poignant in that scene of like, you know, he's trying to get it out of her, she's trying to kind of get it out of him, but like neither want to really open themselves up. And even at the end of the movie, you know, we're getting into spoilers, obviously. Like by the end of the movie, uh, like there is love between them. There's this mutual understanding, but even that last hug, there's this kind of weird palpable tension in there where you're like, they don't quite understand each other still, but they will be there for one another. And I thought that was so really interesting to tackle from this point of view.
1: I feel like um, Alika's father is very. He's like he's quick to trust the the expression Alita presents to him, like when she comes out and she's just dressing herself, how she would dress herself. Her mother is the first person to say like, don't you think that he, that she needs to change and like put this blouse on for church or a skirt. And he immediately responds with, I think that she's fine. Like, at least on the surface, he's accepting to, to what he sees. Like he fosters different pra- behaviors from her. There's a beautiful basketball scene where they both are just like shooting hoops and they have, they have clearly a bond and a connection there. Um And Alika, you know, w- when it finally reaches a boiling point as to her, you know, in <laughs> just letting them know, Hey, yes, I'm gay. Um She even tells him like, you know, you know, that, you know, like it- it's, it's a fact to you. It's, it shouldn't be something that I'm like, you know, Revealing to you it, it just felt like he was closer to Alika's authentic version, but it wasn't until the mother came in and she kind of like placed these ideas of you know alika's not having a future or she's going to be going to hell because her mother just has to profess all these like she's going to have to start praying for her, and there's just so much like toxicity coming from the mother that i didn't feel coming from the father until it was mentioned. That being said, there are multiple like mother daughter relationships we explore here, uh, be it with queer children or um, like children we believe are straight Uh, for one Alika's friend, Alika's best friend, Lauren. Um, has a mother who actually like, we don't know if she's kicked out of the house or we don't know if she just left on her own, but she's living with her sister, Lauren is, and she's trying to get her GED. Um, She isn't as um, involved in like the day-to-day school. Of course, she just wants to get her GED and we're um, left to wonder that, oh, that's just, that's her plan of action. That's what she wants to do. Um, But then throughout the movie, we realize that Lauren is actually like, this is something that she's doing, not for her parents, but she feels... It matters enough to present to them like she comes to her mother's house and she's trying to show her that like Lauren is still working towards something like she still has like a plan in front of her. And I think uh, this movie like shows us different mother and daughter relationships, um, be it with different types of children. Um, it just provides a lot of perspective and perspective that I think is uh believable you know this isn't just like something somebody wrote because it it's not just it was an imagined scene like these are scenes that i can really see happening in real life
0: oh, totally and like d reese <sighs> is a black lesbian like this comes from an incredibly autobiographical place she's been really open about the idea of like yeah like when i came out to my parents like they sent me like emails and bible verses and like all of kind of the wrong things that are like actually engaging with me as a person i do not know about the relationship right now i, I admit i do not know that so Please take that out of context for what it is. Um, but I do want to quickly mention, like you mentioned the idea of Lauren and her sister. I like the idea the film goes into of the idea of, yes, siblinghood, but specifically sisterhood. And the idea that that bond can transcend even the unconditional love of parents because you have both Alike and Lauren who both find comfort in their siblings. There's a great moment where the two parents are fighting in this brilliant scene shot by Bradbury Young, who I want to get into his visuals as much as possible. But there's that scene where Alike and her sister are kind of just sitting in bed and, you know, her younger sister goes like, yeah, it doesn't matter to me. And there's, it's that beautiful simplicity of like, yeah, siblings can understand you more than I think anyone can. And that extends to Lauren and her siblings who just kind of get along and just do their own thing contrasted against that heartbreaking scene of her trying to go to her mom and she just shuts the door in her face.
1: Let's not ignore you know, the fact that Sharonda's an annoying little sister. <laughs> like she barges but in not, unannounced. But not too annoying. That, to me, I watch this and I'm like, oh my gosh, like that is such an annoying little sister. Like get out of my space. Like I'm cheery with my friend or you want to borrow my stuff or you're like, she's just always like there and i think um i can only imagine having that like a couple years old younger sibling um i do have a younger sister but she's 15 you know we didn't have like conflicts in the household but sharonda is uh, like an annoyance to alika but i mean these are siblings they're sisters like oh whatever label you throw on it like at the end of the day like they find comfort in each other's company and unfortunately like it's at times, even when there's conflict in the household, like, yeah, her parents are arguing and Sharanda's in Alika's bed and Alika acknowledges, like, I know that you're not scared, but we can still be here for each other. And <laughs> that was one of the scenes that got my eyes flowing with water because it's all too real to like find that safety, find that security, Um, sometimes not in your parent or oftentimes not in your parent, but in somebody who has that perspective, uh, like on the, on the ground floor, on in the war zone with you, in the arena, and that's your sister, or that's your you know your brother, your sister, your sibling. Um, they've got your back, and Sharonda so clearly has her back. It's That's a wonderful relationship they were able to tackle.
0: To Alike's point of view, like, her sense of place is like her school with her professor who, you know, gave me very big perks of being a wallflower vibe uh, with the kind of, like, English teacher kind of thing. Um, it's the sense of, like, being with Laura and uh, with Lauren playing cards. It's the sense of, like, being with her sister sometimes, or, like, being with Bima, who we haven't even mentioned, like, places everywhere else except with her family. And I think that idea of twisting the darker end of unconditional love is something that I think this movie does masterfully well. And that is all due to, I think, D. Reese's writing and direction, which I think just knows where to place the focus and where not to take too much sense into melodrama, which it could have easily gone into.
1: One of the final relationships to explore, at least the one I want to mention, is her relationship with Bina. So Bina is a friend to Alike um, who is introduced to her by their mothers, um, they are just, they find out that they attend the same church and they walk the same route to school. So the mother suggests that the two walk together, um, kind of like seeking out a, you know, a better fit in a friend. And that's what, um, the mother Audrey is trying to do for her daughter, Alika. Well, Alika and Bina, they start out like immediately conflicting because they have different, um, views about like what their mothers asked them to do and how they want to follow through with that um, through, you know, through realizing that they have more in common than they do different through just a couple hangouts where maybe they rub a little too close or, you know, just feelings are in the air and you start to imagine like, Oh, am I watching like a a romantic relationship bloom um, from these two young women? And uh, I mean, (laughs) this is another one of the hard hitters because um, Alika believes that Bina is like her, you know, willing to um, engage in romantic feelings with someone from the same sex. And Bina is a, it's like, she's, I can't say so, she's teasing because it feels real, but after the two are able to explore a romantic side, a sexual side, Bina the next day reacts as if it was a mistake, reacts as if it was something to be forgotten and clearly is still, having her own journey with identity and sexual expression that hit me like a wall like I was not expecting that at all because of how like how slowly that relationship started to be like fostered and, and to be cared about. And um unfortunately, this isn't a story of, hey, it was a bad one night and then they they met up afterwards and they rekindled and it they had a lasting relationship. No, that was it for Bina. And we're on to the next part of Alike's journey. Like this is this is not one that's here to like bring you bring it all back and have it all be forgiven in the end like ultimately this is about an individual the different relationships they explore while still just learning about themselves uh the best ones here are yes with the professor her sister um lauren or sorry laura and i think we've seen this story before and we know that we we can hope that the mother comes around but you know that's we, we can't we can't tell that part of the story because we didn't see it um What did you think about exploring Bina's relationship with Alike?
0: Again, I don't want to, like, overly gush about this. Like, I do want to get into, like, nippings at some point. But, like, I think that idea of Bina being the other side of that exploration where, like, D-Reese is clearly endorsing the idea of, like, do what you need to do to find yourself and, like, explore with people and connect with people. And especially, like, on a romantic level. I think it becomes problematic for Bina when she just discards um Alike's entire feelings like to Alike this is her coming into her own and to Bina it's just another night and you know we even see later on that like she gets back together with her boyfriend and like that's great like she you know gets a connection there I suppose but like it's at the expense of our main character who we are taught to then root for and then just kind of passes off as nothing but again I love how Reese deals with it like it's never villainizing Bina to any extent. Sometimes this happens, and sometimes you just kind of have to, you know, use that experience to find better relationships in the long run. Like, I would love to see, like, an epilogue, like, 10 years later, like, seeing Alike's character kind of talk about that moment of just, like, yeah, that was really important for me. Like, I realized that I can't put all my eggs into one basket of relationships, and that's what she's doing for Bina at a certain point. Like, she's passing off Laura to a, to, a certain, to an extent.
1: I know you've been waiting to talk about camera work. So if you're ready to dive into some of those details, um, I am too. You know, an impactful scene. Why don't we talk about kind of like impactful scenes just cinematically? Because uh, for me, the opening Uh, train scene.
0: I was going to say real quick, uh, cinematographer is Bradford Young, uh, who you might know from a myriad of different things. He worked with uh, Denis Villeneuve on Arrival. He shot Solo, a Star Wars story. He worked with, hey, look, Ava DuVernay's back. He did When We See Us. Um, Like he is an immaculately good cinematographer. And like, anyways, go to your moments.
1: Of course, yes. <laughs> they always uh I remember this this like bouncing around whether it be like screenwriting courses or like what 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 name it. It's like you don't want to force your character to communicate to the audience what they're supposed to feel. You want the scene to communicate that. You want it to be shown because that's the medium of art that you're choosing in film. In the opening scene, we have a train ride home between Alike and her friend Laura. Uh, both of them look very similar. They're kind of wearing these um uh, these sports caps, they're wearing um oversized clothing and they're not Uh, if you saw them, you would think that this is how they present themselves all the time. Well, Laura kind of gets into a little, like, debacle with... um... when she's asked to like get off on her stop instead of following all all her all the way home and you're watching this going oh like i wonder why she's got such a problem with it and um as the scene continues laura removes herself from the from the train or from the bus whatever they're on and then ali moves up into the scene and sits with herself looks at her reflection and slowly transforms herself out of this oversized, um, like larger figure and like puts on a tighter fitting shirt, um, takes off her hat and kind of like arranges her hair. She puts on some accessories. And from that moment you understand, oh, she's going home and this is who she has to be at home. Like this is who she has to transform into. This is kind of the mask and she's not her, this isn't her real self. And I hope that we reach that point. And that's the introduction of the movie. So it immediately set me up for what I was about to watch and was so entertaining just to watch because of like the crafting that went into it. Uh, Brandon, do you have a notable scene that you wanted to bring up? Oh
0: God, like there's
1: so many. I know, many. I'm like, I, choose one. <laughs> um, several, let's, let's dive into some of them.
0: Like again, so what I what Young does with this overall, I think is just, I don't think it goes up. Like he got a cinematography award from Sundance and yet I still don't think he's recognized enough for this, uh, let alone for like, you know, his Academy Award work on Arrival. Like there's just so much stuff that I would love to talk to him visually about. But I think two scenes I think specifically stand out. One is you mentioned the train sequence. And there's this very subtle shift in lighting that happens between uh, Lauren getting off the train and then going into the zoom in to see her kind of shifting her outfit again. It's very subtle, but it goes to like this idea of as she gets out of that, the lighting dims more and more. And that goes more to the idea of like the home scenes where like it's further darker and like you only have like the natural light of, you know, candles or like a you know beam of light shining in. And like, I like that idea of the idea of the home being this kind of, dwelling place where things can't escape or can't get into and it's again it makes the whole more confined space even with all the parents stuff even with you know alike's own drama it's a visual cue that i think really helps the other one that i really like is the actual uh, the concert scene that she goes to which is actually done by uh, tamar Kali, who's the composer for this movie who i love by the way dude Tamar Kali, there was, uh,
1: just so you know, we have a kind of a connection there with uh, being a Sun Devil, like she had a performance uh, over at the um, ASU Damage stage for a night celebrating like different cultures and different uh, methods of art they were able to bring. Yeah, this was around the time I believe that she composed Mudbound. And so Tamar Kali, that was a familiar name for me, um, and uh, I just wanted to mention that real quick. Like being a Sun Devil, I was like, she was in the, ga- she was on the damage stage, Brandon. And so I thought you were going to say she was one. And I was just like, hell yeah. Um, um I, I, you know, I've seen her and I've, I've listened to the work and it's uh, beautiful. Oh my gosh. And I was looking at this movie, um, because she's worked with Mudbound. I was like, I wonder if they worked together before, but, uh, unfortunately no. Uh, but go on, Brandon. I just had to interrupt for the Sun if no, I- Any Sun Devils listening?
0: No, I'm glad you did. You know what? We're two Sun Devils. She's an honorary Sun Devil. Ha ha. You can't stop us, Michael Crow. But no, I think the concert scene with Tamar Kali and her band, I think, is shot so vibrantly. There's so much color in that scene. There's so much energy in where Young decides to place the camera in contrast to between uh, Alike and Bima's uh, kind of view of it all. The way he will cut back to, like, the drummer in particular, which I liked. But at the same time, it was that idea of just, like, you know, the pounding energy is getting more and more up until we get to the bedroom scene. It's just these little visual cues that he seems to do that takes advantage of only the most pure isolated type of light up until like the last 20 minutes where we get more like, oh, this was very clearly like lit from somewhere else. Like it's bright sunshines and everything like that. But like up until that point, it's very distinctive forms of lighting for only certain places. And I love how it shows Alike in certain lights that I think Reese intended, but couldn't fully get with the camera. I'd say the initial scene where, oh, no not the initial scene, the I, uh, the scene later on where Alike introduces Bima to Laura and they're all kind of in this like pier area where the camera becomes increasingly scattershot as the tension between Alike and Bima uh, keeps escalating. And you'll just constantly like pan back to Bima just like on the pier, just kind of, you know, wandering around. But I like that because it makes the sense of space of like, she's a part of this at this point in the story. She's a part of this, too. And like, she's just as important. Like, it would be so important just to just be like, oh, she's over there. She's hanging out with people. No, no. like She's just as invested in the scene. And I love that choice.
1: In that one night moment where they um, have no inhibitions and they give in to love, albeit for one freaking night. Um... A one night of passion right like we have such an intimate moment with them both on the bed this is like the most naked they've both been in front of each other um (laughs) they're laughing about like cooking more brownies and you know the 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 fingers start exploring and I think um it's so touching and then we cut to morning and there are quick edits of Bina cleaning up her room you know it it, it feels it feels messy it feels like you're just as confused as Alika is waking up and going like we don't like you know we can wait until we tell people we're together like so clearly coming from one side of this where it conflicts with the way it's being shot because this isn't an intimate moment to be expressing feelings this is a quick cleanup episode where (laughs) you've got to get out like i'm i'm erasing what happened the night before and i think uh the camera like is very efficient in communicating that along with the actors um
0: I want to give oh, a shout okay. out to uh, Mako Kamitsuna's editing as well, who's worked on Mudbound as well, like a recurring grow But like, you're right. That scene is so poignant because it should be a moment of bliss. And then almost immediately you get that sense of something's not right here.
1: Yeah. Um, Brandon. We haven't,
0: even, we haven't even talked about the performances yet. And I, we do need to wrap it up, but I do want to just quickly say, uh, Adepera Oduye is phenomenal in this. You've probably seen her in things like 12 Years a Slave. Uh, she was Uh, Actually, the Falcon's sister in Falcon and Winter Soldier, which I thought was really neat. I knew I recognized her from somewhere, but I didn't quite pinpoint where. She is phenomenal in this. I love the subtlety that she brings to the character. How she, the moments that she's able to smile just light up the screen because you truly recognize the intimate happiness there. Whether it's, you know, her parking with her dad or like the basketball scene or like the very end. Like those moments really stand out in contrast to everything else that she is just trying to make this movie as heavy and intimate as possible. But I do also want to give a shout out to uh, Kim Wayans as the mom, uh, as Audrey, I should say, who brimming toxicity from the character that you just can't help but like get involved with her as a character.
1: I'm right there with you. When it came to performances, um, Kim Wayans or Kim Wayans uh, like hit it out the park for me for being that mother who is like so ready to be, ready to accept the love that, that she wants and that she needs from her children, but immediately becomes a different person and like feels unfamiliar to you when there's something that she doesn't understand in front of her. And, Oh, you know, if you watch this movie, you're clearly signing up for like the emotional, um, weight of it. So I will say, and there's a defining moment for this character where, um, Alike after revealing her, her expression, her identity to her parents, she meets up with Audrey, the mother, and she, just says the words, I love you. And she wants to hear it back from her mother and the way that her mother looks at her, the way, the way you feel like just ball, like hands fisted because that it's three words that you can say to your child. And instead she just says, she grabs her book, which I assume is like some biblical text. And she just says, you know, I will be praying for you. And I think that that's the last time we see both of them share the same screen and oh uh, <laughs> man and like, way to make me believe that <laughs> like and
0: exceptional like no, and like no you you brought up that scene i'm so glad you did because just that tiny detail damn you d reese for tiny details there's that moment where it pans over to just the apple on the table and it's so like shiny and clean almost as if like at this point she's broken like everything in her life has to be perfect because her daughter somehow isn't i was like oh that's such good set design
1: Thank you, D. Reese, for giving me a mo- movie that I could feel so emotionally compelled by and also look back and appreciate for the art I just witnessed. Like, Brandon, I'm ready for ratings.
0: Yes, and I will actually conjoin that with, just, um, in terms of filmography, we talked about that last week. Um, I know you can't quite attest to this as well, but like for me, this is D. Reese's easily best film. It's the most personal, intimate, and by far, I think, most complete. Uh, not to say Mudbound isn't really good. I haven't revisited in the years since, but I really did enjoy it. Uh, And Bessie, which she actually did about um, Bessie Smith for HBO, which really solid as well. But like this pales, those pale in comparison, I think, to what this does. Uh, For me, this is very easy nine and a half out of 10. It might have even grown to a 10. Again, I'm not comfortable giving things 10s uh, unless I really truly adore them, but this is pretty damn close. I did a podcast guest appearance a couple of years ago where I I gave this an honorable mention for the best films of the 2010s. And I stand by all of it. I think what D Reese does with this is immaculately personal intimate complex and never shies away from anything small or big when it comes to coming out as a woman as a black lesbian as a butch lesbian you know in any type of space if you've been at that point any time in your life even if it's not like a coming out type of narrative i think you can relate to this on some level and i really quickly just want to go back to uh we you mentioned early on just to tie this back in uh the idea of poetry who Dee reese has been compared to a lot of specific black poets Specifically, Audrey Lorde, whose uh, quote starts the movie, which is wherever the bird with no feet flew, she found trees with no limbs. And I think that sums up the idea of a movie as finding a sense of place and finding a sense of comfort within that place. You know, Alika is desperately trying for acceptance and love, and eventually she does find it within herself. And I thought that ending quote of, you know, I'm not running, I'm choosing, I think ties together the idea of finding yourself and finding love within yourself whether others may not unconditionally love it or not i found just so profound and i absolutely love this movie and i want to get to your rating because so i don't want to keep talking
1: i am so caught up with the beautiful words you had to say about this what was your rating what was the number
0: oh it's a Nine and a half.
1: Nine and a half. thank you for saying that I, I had to hear yours back um let me read you what the title poster image of this movie says. It says pariah. It is a noun. It is a person without status. It is a rejected member of society. It is an outcast. This is a movie that so heavily like portrays someone coming from the LGBTQ plus community and hitting those hard, those hard walls with their parents and others in society who just refuse to accept what is before them. Um, and while it shows that side of things. It also shows the importance of like, like discovered family. Like Laura is so clearly like a, a family member to her and her younger sister. Like I have a feeling like the barriers that they show in this film, like they exist just for the sake of accounting for the, the evils, the evil reactions that exist in the world today. She's an outcast only to the pe- people who see her that way to her younger sister and to her best friend. Like she is a member of them and she she, fits so well where she is because it's it's authentic and it's real it's it it just makes me feel love and makes me appreciate that i belong to a beautiful community um (laughs) and i'm going to give this a nine out of ten it was a beautiful watch i look forward to revisiting this with some of my queer friends um and straight friends alike uh promoting it to family members, just to understand multiple perspectives. And I think that you should too. I think it's worth exploring. And I'm so happy to mention this is streaming on HBO max. So for anybody who has HBO max, you can pick it right up. And (laughs) it's a quick watch. You're looking at like an hour and a half movie that packs in so much. So you'll be thinking about it in the hours after.
0: So that'll do it for episode two of Director of the Abuse. you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Go check out our first episode if you're curious about this, uh, where we talked about Matt Reeves as the pallbearer. Listen, while we've got you here, uh, give us a follow, why don't you? We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our RSS feed at PlotDevices.com. That's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RSS feed at Plot Devices. You're probably listening to us on one of those there. Why not follow us on all three? That that helps us quite a bit. Uh, you can also follow us on social media at Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. That's Plot Devices Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Social media manager by default, uh, Noah Guzman, my co-host. Uh, Noah, what do you have going on in your life, and what should people know about
1: people should know that you can find me on Twitter at Noah's plotting. And recently I bought the coolest phone ever. I bought a galaxy Z fold. Yes. That is the Samsung galaxy that folds, but I'm getting into sketching. So let's see if I turn that into some kind of side project, but we'll kind of see what it goes down. I'm excited to return with the next directorial debut. Pariah is clearly the next champion in this, in this list of uh, features we've explored. We'll have to keep a ranking list of like where those debuts landed
0: noted I will make a list of that uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at king 45 that's Twitter and Instagram at king 45 follow my band at box underscore music that's box underscore music we've got uh, live gigs coming up and potentially new music as well just keep an eye out for that just give us a follow we'd love to you know have you guys as part of the cable community so to speak um, also you can find my um, work at ASU Odyssey that's ASU Odyssey slash Brandon King and once again Block Devices Pod Twitter Instagram Spotify Apple Podcasts, RSS feed follow us there we appreciate all sports that you guys have been offering us so far with that being said for episode two of directorial debuts in affiliation with plot devices my name is brandon king that has been noah guzman and we will catch you guys next time